0: Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to elders past and present. The Hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of JIRA, an Aboriginal-controlled community organisation where culture is shared and celebrated. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal, and Black Lives Matter. Big Sister Hotline, how can we help? Hello, dear listeners, guys, gals and non-binary pals. You're listening to The Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny and feminist advice on life, love and whether or not you should break up with that no-good Nick boyfriend. We know that the answer is yes. My guest today is a Jewish, queer, non-binary writer, performer, activist, and public speaker based in Naam, biruranga Melbourne. They run workshops in schools and professional development trainings in workplaces around transgender identity and language, and they are the author of award-winning Finding Nevo, a memoir on gender transition, and also a contributor to Kindred 12, Queer Love YA Stories. They are a mentor for the Pinnacle Foundation, one of Out for Australia's 30 Under 30, and a member of the Gender Euphoria cast, which is Australia's largest all trans and gender diverse show on a main stage. And for the second time in the Hotline's history, they are also not a big sister, even though we also know that sister is genderless. It's a concept, not a practice. They are Isn't.
1: Hello, thanks so much for having me.
0: It's so great to have you here in my kitchen.
1: Oh, it's so nice to be in person doing an event of some kind. I'm so excited.
0: I know. How have you been?
1: Oh, gosh, I don't know. Up and down. It's been a time. I moved out to Warrandyte, though, out into the trees and by the river, which has been an absolute saving grace. So very grateful for that. Yep.
0: Have you had any particular positive impacts from the lockdown in terms of moving, you know, you have a tree change and you get to simplify your life in certain ways. What have you found that's been good this year?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I think slowing down has been really important for me. And I think really important in the sustainability of any kind of activism is actually taking breaks, which I often say, but don't often do. Mm -hmm. I've given myself weekends now. Turns out when you work for yourself, you can actually create your hours. I think I've always just said yes to everything. And now I'm not.
0: Can you teach me how to do
1: that? (laughs) Yeah, I'll try. I'm still trying to teach myself. So I have weekends now and I have work hours and I turn my computer off at a certain time and I read more and I've been exercising quite a lot during lockdown, which has been really beautiful. And also like building a really healthy and sustainable practice with exercise that isn't body shaming or fat phobic or ableist, Mm. but actually trying to really connect with myself through that. So that's been really wonderful.
0: That's really interesting because I probably about six or seven weeks ago started running. I was inspired by my hairdresser because she started running during lockdown and said that she found it amazing for her mental health. And I feel like I've been trying to connect with myself in all those same ways, you know, in a really positive mental health. I run because it makes me feel good, not because I'm aiming for any kind of Mm. physical outcome with my body. I share my progress in my Instagram stories, but I always take out the calorie burn because it's Mm. irrelevant. What are some of the things that you have found that have been helpful in that body positivity, connecting with your body rather than You know, playing into the diet industry and the fitness industry and the fitspo Mm, stuff, which can mm -hmm. be so toxic.
1: It's so hard to find people to follow as well who don't play into really sexist Mm. tropes or fatphobic. And I can't do comparison photos. I can't look at them and I can't take them myself because we're all befores and afters there is no linearity to this kind of journey. We are all going to fluctuate in the ways that our bodies look with age, with experience, with circumstance, like those things are always changing. So I avoid taking any of those kinds of photos or putting them on the internet. But I do really like taking videos of progress. So I like comparing how many chin-ups I might be able to do or Mm. how many push-ups or and kind of track it more as progress rather than as body change. I think also... Really listening to my body and trying to be more intuitive. So if it's really not an exercise day, it's not an exercise day and not shaming myself about that. I think also not letting it bleed into my eating patterns. Mm. I don't eat based off what I want my body to look like. I eat because it's fuel and because I love it and it's my culture and it's my friendship groups and it's my joy in life. So I still eat all the things I want to. And I think those are just really important things and constantly reminding myself that this is like a mental health sustainability practice and that I need to do this to feel good in myself and to feel active. And I think also because I really want to have kids and I really love kids and they are fast, so (laughs) fast and so heavy. And I don't know how parents do it but they are superheroes including yourself and i want to prepare for that mm. i want to be training up and i also want to be harder to kill <laughs> because i am not hard to kill <laughs> so mm. i think that was those are my big like motivators is it's much less about a number on a scale which is honestly so arbitrary and doesn't really say anything about anything and much more goal orientated and just feeling powerful and strong. Mm.
0: It's interesting because I have been reconnecting with those parts of myself through my running journey. I appreciate what you're saying about children being really fast. I've definitely become stronger since having my son, partly because he's about 25 kilos, but he's only four years old. So he still likes to be carried a lot, which is great because it's so nice to snuggle and smoosh with him. And I know that one day he won't want that anymore, but it's a big load to carry around, particularly if he's like, I don't want to ride my scooter anymore. Can you carry me? So I'm carrying him in one arm and the scooter in the other and bags. And, you know, I sort of finally appreciate that sense of kind of the cliched trope of the mother being the pack horse. Uh But I've, in reconnecting with my body in that way, it reminds me of when I first started playing roller derby where I was able to, it wasn't necessarily that my body changed dramatically but I was suddenly able to appreciate it for the things that it could do rather than the way that it looked doing Mm -hmm. them. It feels to me like simultaneously the simplest path to body love and yet also such a complex thing that takes so many of us so long to get to. I don't know if this was your experience growing up, but I didn't really play sports partly because I wasn't really encouraged to my, by my parents. I mean, it wasn't discouraged either. It just sort of wasn't really a feature of our lives. But also because I was so self-conscious all the time. And I'm, as a deeply anxious person, I find team sports incredibly stressful. So a lot of roller derby really stressed me out because I hate the idea of letting people down.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So it took me a really long time to get to that sense with my body that it was a vessel for things that could be achieved and that I could feel really prideful of how strong it was. And that's my journey as a cis person. Mm
1: -hmm. So this
0: is, you've got this going on plus all of the layered complexity of your journey as a trans person and your Mm. path to who you are today. Can we talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting because I think, I mean, so much of the trans training that I do and like the workshops that I run are really about the universality of a lot of these experiences because I don't think that they're unique to trans people or to any kinds of bodies. I think that they are a universal experience that we all go through, which is self-love, love reclaiming our bodies, learning to love ourselves in a world that teaches us not to and that profits off our self-doubt and our self-hatred. And so, you know, similarly to you, I wasn't really encouraged to play sport when I was a kid and I wasn't very good at it. And I guess also because I was like the fat kid, it was like Mm. you're never going to be good at this even though my body really had nothing to do with my capabilities in that way. And so it was kind of through... A lot of different journeys in my life and my brother, like being a personal trainer and encouraging me to exercise that taught me that I could autonomously choose these things and be in control of them and I can be good at things. And it just actually takes being bad at them first, which is something I'm really trying to work on is that I can't automatically be good at everything that I am going to be bad at things and that that's okay. And also I feel like it's quite radical To love yourself, especially as a trans person in this world, but also to choose to do something that's just for you. When we're all working so much, we're all doing so much for other people, I really feel like my exercise time is my self-care time and it's my time to appreciate myself. And I really try at the end of every workout to thank my body and be grateful and express gratitude, which is something I really got from Betty Grumble and Grumble Mm. Boogie that uh, she was running in this time. And so, you know, she's always saying, thank you, body. And so (laughs) I feel like I try to spend time thanking my body because it's like, I'm going to be in this body For the rest of my life, like there's no time to be hating myself or putting myself down. Like loving myself is a radical act and it's taken a really long time to get here, but I am able to cultivate that practice every day. Mm. So,
0: for listeners who may not be aware of this, you also at the start of the year appeared in my conversations with men. Yeah,
1: that was my last event, I think, before (laughs) lockdown.
0: So Conversations with Men is an event that I do with five humans, I suppose, because you don't identify as a man, but we were talking about masculinity and I invited you to be a part of that. And you very gratifyingly for me agreed, but it's basically five men or humans standing on stage and talking about masculinity and the things that they learnt about masculinity and what it meant to be men. And you performed there and you delivered this beautiful speech where you talked about how the understanding that you've gone through on your trans, again, we sneer at the word journey and Mm. it is sort of, it does have all these loaded terms, but basically one of the things that you said was that now that you are living your life the way that you are now, you're actually embracing all of the femme parts of yourself that once upon a time you felt very distanced from. Mm. Can we talk about that?
1: Yeah, totally. I'm more femme now than I've ever been in my life. I feel more like a woman now than I ever have in my life. Maybe I'm just still that like argumentative teenager who just wants to rebel (laughs) against everything all the time. As long as it's subversive, I'm here for it. (laughs) So, yeah, it could be that. But, um, again, I think there's a real universality to these ideas of masculinity and femininity. I don't think that we're, like, immune from toxic masculinity, for example, just because we're not cis men. And I don't think that femininity is, like, reserved for women, either Mm. cis or trans. But I guess for me, like becoming more comfortable in the body that I was in meant that I could express myself more freely. And I guess my relationship to my gender is quite complicated because the things that people would code as masculine, like my deeper voice or my body hair, I actually feel a really femme and my relationship with them are really femme. The way that I feel masculine is through my sort of parental instincts and my urge to be a parent. I often really associate with like lions and the, the male lion is the one who sort of looks after the kids and does this really cute thing where the cubs will like play and wrestle and bite the dad and the dad would be like, oh, that was really painful. Good job to like encourage them to be big and strong. And I don't know, I've always just really identified with that. Whereas my femininity, I think, is very much my like staunch independence, my strength, my like I don't need anyone, Mm -hmm. I can do things on my own. And those things are just always so fluid and evolving within my body.
0: That's quite reflective as well of a reality that a lot of people don't engage with, which is that masculinity and men because of toxic masculinity and the way that patriarchy has limited men and men's expressions of themselves, that softness has really been, mm-hmm. if not eradicated, then definitely shamed out of a lot of men. Whereas if you can say what you observe in children is how they will be for their life, I've observed in, in my grand pool of one, I've observed all of that beautiful softness in mm-hmm. my son and I know that this is true for a lot of parents of boys, that it doesn't disappear because they suddenly go through puberty and become robots, mm-hmm. you know, that it, it disappears because we tell them that the softness that they have is bad yeah. and wrong. Whereas on the other hand, we know that staunchness and strength is present in so many women and it is, I relate strongly when you say that this is something that seems very feminine to you as this strength because that rings true for me too.
1: Yeah, and I have such a strong connection as well to the matriarchal lines of my family and, like, culturally as a Jewish person, like, the women that I know are so loud and take up so much space and are so strong and are just the bosses. And that's how I relate to my femininity is so much on that line. And I think because I'm not cis and I am non-binary and I do get rid of the man more often than not, my relationship with masculinity is actually is softness because I really want people to feel safe around me and I no longer have that sort of default safeness that I used to have as someone read as a woman. Mm. So I noticed that change really significantly when I transitioned, you know, from I always talk about how walking down late at night on the street, you know, for women it's something that is very Dangerous and scary. And we all have these like plan Bs and these backup plans and these friends that we're going to call and holding keys between our hands and all that sort of thing. You know, I don't need to tell you, but that was something that I very much grew up with. You know, walking home, being prepared for some act of violence and, you know, having my keys, having triple zero. I remember like I would walk past men on the street and I would have a fake conversation with my dad over the phone and be like, Oh, hey, dad, how was bodybuilding class you're like a mere second away great yeah I'll see you in a moment you know and I do things like that and when I transitioned that didn't just dissipate I wasn't just suddenly really comfortable and safe on the street but what I started to notice over time was that women began to look over their shoulder at me Mm. and that I had become the threat what do you do in that situation you know oh I'm not going to attack you I promise. <laughs> I promise. Like, not all men, you know, I'm not going to do that. Or, oh, I used to be a woman. Don't worry. <laughs> like, there's only so much you can do. And so I think it was through those processes that cultivating healthy masculinity became not just a choice but a matter of necessity. Mm. I needed people to feel safe around me because that's what I've always, more than any gender, I identify as safe and kind and gentle and a good friend and a good person, you know, like that is much more important to me than gender. Mm. So it's like, how do you cultivate that when you're then in a body that is read as dangerous? And as someone raised in a patriarchal society, I learned to hate myself as a woman. And then I transitioned and learned to hate myself as a man. At what point do I just stop hating myself? Mm.
0: Thank you for sharing that. I also, without wanting to sound twee, I identify you as safe and a good friend and kind and all those things too. In fact, you teach me, you're a lot younger than me, but you teach me so much, not just about how to kind of tackle issues around trans identity, but also about humanity. And I think that that's one of the things that makes you so appealing to people as a writer, as a performer, but also as an educator. One of the things that you do is you conduct training workshops with corporations, schools, entities, any group of people that would like to have a better understanding of how to be inclusive of trans identities and more aware of of how much more evolved our thinking has become around these issues. I was noticing some of the language that you used in that previous conversation, you said when I transitioned, and I've heard people say either transition or affirm gender, Mm. you joked... I used to be a woman, which is not something that... I I think you can make that joke because you're a trans person, but obviously I would never say that. (laughs) For the people who are listening to this who want to be better and Mm -hmm. who want to be allies but who maybe are a little uncertain around what the quote-unquote protocol of language is, what advice would you give them or or what, what do you say in your training that would be helpful for our listeners?
1: Yeah, I think such a big process of, like, getting involved... In social justice, or even just becoming a better person, is that you're not an expert in these areas and you're never going to be if you don't have the lived experience. In fact, sometimes even if you do have the lived experience, you might not have the theory or like some mm. of the language around or the literacy around some of these issues. And so, I guess when it comes to trans language, it is evolving so much. The language that we used to use even five years ago, or even when I came out in 2013, has changed drastically. And a lot of the language that we used to use use was very much informed by cisgender people and by pathologizing institutions like the medical industry and psychiatry and all of those sorts of places. And so a lot of trans people have used that language now for themselves, but it has a really dark history. Mm -hmm. So words such as transsexual or transvestite, for example, have that really loaded history that may still really apply to older trans and gender diverse people, but for younger people has really different meanings or sits in a really different place. And I think, yeah, as you said, like I can make certain jokes about my life and my identity, but it is very personal Mm. and the way that I speak about my journey is going to be really different from another trans person. We always had this joke amongst other public speakers in the trans space uh, that, you know, if you've heard one trans story, well, you've heard one trans story, (laughs) you know, like we are not spokespeople for the entire community. But I guess, yeah, things to be really conscious of is that, For example, something I see coming up a lot lately is like, this space is open for women and people who identify as women. And it's like, I would categorise that into pseudo-inclusivity. It's like people trying to be inclusive but not really getting Mm. it. People who identify as women are women. (laughs) You can just say women. If you want to be really clear, you can say women, trans, cis, You know, like you can be inclusive of those things very specifically. But I don't know. I mean, it's hard to run through what is a do and what is a don't Mm. just kind of like this. But I really recommend engaging with trans literature and with trans training, getting those places into your workplaces. Book me for training if you want (laughs) to, you know. And um, I also do a lot of one-on-one consultation as well with people, even small businesses, of how they can just be a bit more Aware, and I think it means ongoing and meaningful relationships. It's not a box that you can just tick because that stuff is evolving. It's like professional development that you need to do every year, and you need to do that in trans stuff, you need to do that in anti racism, you need to do it with regard to disability, with regard to First Nations justice. Like all of these intersectional identities and experiences of the world are things that we won't truly understand if we benefit from the systems that put them in place but we can always be engaging with those things and asking those questions.
0: Mm. And speaking of trans literature, you have written your third book, now.
1: Yeah, yeah. I guess my third publication, second book that I have written, but sure, yeah. Tell people about oh, it. Weird. Um, it's called The Pronoun Lowdown. People keep thinking it's The Pronoun Lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> I think that really shows. That's going to be the sequel. Um, it's coming out with Smith Street Books in March 2021. And it's basically a small hardback coffee table book of sorts um, that's an educational resource about pronouns. It delves in a little bit into the history of they, them as a singular program that lexicographers have calculated it has existed and since maybe the 1300s and that, you know, many luminaries of the English language have used it as a singular pronoun for a really long time. Uh, it speaks as well about gender neutral language in other languages around the world and what efforts are being made within gendered languages. I've got Lots of lists of representation on screen, on film, in books uh, for trans and gender diverse people. I've got some really cute guides of how to pick your pronouns and your name and different ways to support trans and gender diverse people. The glossary is also there that I think is quite useful. My friend was uh, laughing about how sassy it is. So, you know, I've got a part where I say about pronouns, the definition is, well, that's kind of what this book is about. I'm not going to give you the easy way out. Read it. <laughs> and then uh, gender is this one I'm afraid you're going to have to define for yourself. So I'm really proud of this uh, glossary because I think it's it's informative but it's also Funny. got attitude <laughs> and I really consider myself a sassy educator. <laughs> so yeah, I think there's a lot in the book of those sorts of things and I'm really excited for it to come out and complement my first book, Finding Nouveau, which is much more of a story of my life. Mm.
0: Why is it important for cis people to include their pronouns when introducing themselves or when defining their space?
1: Mm. I think because it just really normalises pronoun use. I think as a trans person I am constantly having to Mm. offer up my pronouns and how uncomfortable or weird that makes people feel or if I choose not to, just how often I'm misgendered. It's one of those things, you know, the amount of energy that goes into deciding whether to say something or not is really exhausting. And the other day, I'm just gonna tell this anecdote because I think it might help, the other day I went to get a piercing and I was really nervous about it and I hadn't really reemerged in the world for a while. And I mean, this entire lockdown, I haven't been misgendered once because my housemates know me. And so I think that was a really big advantage of lockdown for a lot of trans people was not having to perform or dress a certain way so that we would be gendered correctly. And when you're non-binary, you're really never gendered correctly. And I went to this piercing place and sort of mentioned to them that I'd had chest surgery and they asked me if it was top surgery and that they work with lots of trans people and, you know, it's not a problem and the booking form asked for my my name, my pronouns and it was just so not a thing. Mm. And I almost cried and I said thank you to them and they were like, oh, this is just our job, like it's important, this is a safe space. And I got home and just reflected on how easy that interaction was and how exhausted I am every day from having to decide whether I'm going to engage with someone on this or not, especially as an educator who does this stuff all the time for work. So by initiating those conversations, cis people are just taking that burden off our back and it really is in so many ways the bare minimum. Like pronoun use is just one of many things that people can do as allies, standing in solidarity with trans people to help us move in the world in safer ways And so, yeah, I think it's quite an easy one, just introducing yourself and saying, hey, my name's Clementine, I use she, her pronouns, what about you? Or having it in email signatures or on your Instagram bio. Those little things just really indicate to trans people that I can say my pronouns and you'll probably be more likely to respect them.
0: Mm, Rather than sneer at it as a concept.
1: Yeah, or just ignore it.
0: Mm. What do people do then? I mean, I've seen some really good instructional posts and memes about this but I'd love to hear it from you and I'd love for listeners to hear it from you what do people do if they fuck up
1: mm. and you will fuck up because yeah. we or when they fuck up I should yeah say. exactly I We're, fuck
0: up all the time everyone knows that
1: yeah and I mean something that I often say is you know don't tell everyone but um trans people mess up each other's pronouns too that we also make mistakes (laughs) because we are also human. And it just takes practice. It's just a muscle and you just kind of have to keep using it. The more worried you are about fucking up, the more likely you are to fuck up. So it actually means like leaning in and knowing you'll make mistakes. And so if you do make a mistake, just apologise, correct yourself and move on. So if I was to say, oh, I saw Kevin the other day at the beach. He was with his dog. Oh, I mean, Sarah, sorry. I saw Sarah, she was with her dog at the beach. It's really as simple as that. It's like if you were to meet a baby and misgender them and the parent was like, actually, this is my daughter, you'd be like, oh, so sorry, daughter, mm. and just move on. And it's really as easy as that.
0: It is as easy as that, and it should be as easy as that. Weirdly, though, people freak out when they misgender a baby because that this is where it all starts, isn't it, this devotion to the binary, mm. to this really unhealthy binary you know, it starts when people have gender reveal parties when the baby's still
1: in the fucking womb. Did you see that the person who started gender reveal parties has apologised since? (laughs) I did.
0: Yeah, so it starts then and as you know, when I was pregnant, we didn't tell anyone the sex of the Mm. baby. And I sort of tried after he was born, I mean, he has asserted that he is a boy now, which is why I'm so confident using he, him pronouns publicly. But... I remember this one circumstance where I was carrying him and he was wearing pink leggings. He was like three months old or something. And this woman peered in to the baby carrier and she said, oh, she's so beautiful. And sometimes, oftentimes when he's mistaken for a girl, I just let it go because I think whatever, like I don't want him to think that there's something shameful about being assumed to be... A girl. But this on this particular occasion, I knew that she was coding him as a mm. girl. So I was happy to say, actually, he's a boy. And she looked and she said, oh, but he's wearing pink. Mm-hmm. All of those little things. I mean, when you have a child, you'll have to experience this doubly. Mm, you I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's so bizarre when you're sort of in the thick of it thinking, why is this so important for people to know this?
1: Yeah. And it's, It is important for people to know it because it will change how they treat your child Mm -hmm. and then it will shape how that child is brought up, you know, and I know that you've already explored these sorts of things in your books, but, you know, even the toys that we give children really contribute to their developmental psychology, you know, and the reasons why we have ideas about like boys being better at maths and science is also because often baby boys are given more spatial awareness toys and so they develop those skills earlier Mm -hmm. on in life and these are the things that it's like, oh, but it's just biological and it's like, no. it's neuroplasticity, it's social conditioning. Like we have done so much in that area and we disadvantage everyone in that regard, you know, like little boys not getting to play with kitchen sets and things Mm -hmm. like that means that they won't learn some of the really important skills around empathy and expression of emotions and cooking, which, to be honest, anyone who eats needs to know how to do. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) You know, and I mean, that was something I found really interesting as well. Like, I never really expected to be disadvantaged in any way by being read as a man. But when I, you know, I've always been working in childcare sort of areas and once I started presenting as a man, there was so much suspicion Mm. around me working with kids and, you know, I'd make faces at babies at the supermarket and when I presented as a woman, they would just hand me their babies. They'd be like, oh, do you want to cuddle? And I'd be like, yes, of course. (laughs) Whereas like once I had a bit of facial hair, like the way that I was looked at with so much suspicion and You know, kids would just, like, parents would say, oh, my kid doesn't want to have a swimming teacher who's a male or who has Mm. a beard or something. And it was like, do you know that dads exist?
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, I mean, to be fair, this is also spawned from a justifiable fear. Oh, absolutely.
1: I don't blame women for that. I blame violent men for that. You know, I blame the the patriarchy for that. But it is really interesting That it's just seen as normal Mm. and acceptable and probably by people who wouldn't call themselves feminists or recognise that the patriarchy exists.
0: And also because generally in society, even women who consider themselves feminists and who are mothers and who are trying to defang the patriarchy around them will often not expect men in society to play a broader role in the village of raising children. One of the things that I used to do when my son was a baby and he was still in the carrier and they make you take them, you know, was travelling a lot for work and he would come with me and they make you take them out of the carrier when you go through the security. I mean, I guess I get it, I suppose, but it's very frustrating. You've got to put everything through the security belt, holding this baby and then putting it all back on. Mm. And I would always find a man in the line and a, i loved picking the businessman as well, and I would say, "Would you mind just holding my baby for a minute while I just put the carrier on And actually, nine times out of ten, they loved it. you know they were like, mm. "Yeah, of course, and you could tell some of them maybe were dads themselves or they were uncles or whatever, and they'd kind of jostle them on their hips. Sometimes they'd just weirdly hold them out in front of <laughs> hold him out in front of them and just hold him there, which is fine because sometimes. Some women do that too. Yeah. But I, I thought it was really important to kind of say just because you're a dude doesn't mm. mean that you get away with not being a part of this society. But also just because you're a dude it doesn't mean you don't want to be a part of this society. Exactly.
1: Yeah, I was recently running a workshop with a workplace and we were talking about the ways that, that we get gendered and something I like to do in my workshops is actually ask everyone in the room, like, are there ways in your life that you feel like you've been disadvantaged because of mm. your gender, or you've been held back, and you know we were talking because I was working with an orchestra, and they were saying how at the end of a performance, the men get wine and the women get flowers. And I was like, "That's so interesting. What happens if you're a recovering alcoholic? Mm. What happens if she wants to get drunk tonight? <laughs> what well, happens? She probably does, and she probably does. And what happens if you want flowers? You know, and this one guy was like, "I love flowers, and I've never." been given flowers and I was like, oh, honey, I feel for you.
0: It's so broken, isn't it? These arbitrary rules that we have, we're like, well, we can't taint men with flowers and sunshine and pretty things or like they can't possibly be connected to pink or glitter because... What will that do to this incredibly strong masculinity?
1: Mm. A masculinity so. which is breaking our society. Like we're and breaking
0: them. And breaking first. them
1: like we're cultivating this thing that is completely toxic and mm-hmm. poisonous to everyone. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I think that so many of these kinds of like feminist values and whatever are very bled into transness and the mm-hmm. ways that we look at not just degendering, because I also think that gender is beautiful and expansive and wonderful and people have genders and that's valid and I'm, I'm not looking to make everyone gender-neutral, but I think that there are so many ways that if we can integrate these sorts of trans-inclusive practices, it does benefit everybody. I think that is really applicable with regard to, like, parental leave, for example, degendering parental leave so that all parents can have access to that regardless of their gender I think Mm. is such a liberatory experience for people of all genders. I think giving children toys and letting them wear whatever they want is really beneficial regardless of whether someone is trans or not. And so I think, you know, a lot of these things, and I think this applies as well to anti-racism and to, you know, disability is like if we can change some of the ways that our world works to be more accessible to all, it will be accessible to all.
0: Mm. Should we do some healing now and answer some questions? Yes. Please note... My disclaimer in very big flashing lights that neither I nor Naveau are doctors, counsellors or professionally trained sex therapists. We're just two humans who've got a little thing called life experience and who both love a good thirst trap selfie. How to fuck the system says... I have a rather broad question, at least compared to the others I've heard asked here. I feel I have grown up as a more empowered woman than my typical peer and my family role models have never taken explicit shit from men, which has been a head start in life. However, I struggle because from my perspective, the men still have more agency, autonomy and have more prosperous careers than that of the women in my life. From my own family dynamic, my parents are together and in a loving relationship, but my mum was the primary caregiver and is now in her mid-50s. She wants to work, yet she has to reinvent herself slightly. So I guess, long story short, I have two questions. One, how do you not resent people who are a byproduct of their environment, yet have benefited from the patriarchy and seem to refuse to acknowledge their role in it? And two... How do you have enough gusto to just fuck the system with only positive intentions in mind while constantly seeking that all-encompassing parental approval? Niveau.
1: One of the first steps in not cultivating resentment, especially of individuals, I think you can resent systems. I think you should resent systems, and I think that that should work as a flame underneath you to get shit done But I think when we apply that to individuals it can be much more complicated and the ways that I sort of work through that is by understanding that I am also a beneficiary of a hell of a lot of privilege, that if I stand on stolen land I don't get to speak about being the most oppressed minority and if I'm cisgender, if I'm heterosexual, if I'm white, if I'm able-bodied, if I come from a socioeconomically stable household or family, like there are so many ways that I am also advantaged and... I think that really needs to be acknowledged when we talk about patriarchy and we talk about women's oppression because, yes, all of those things absolutely exist and they are absolutely true. And also, if you have had access to the other privileges, it means you have escaped a lot of the oppression and a lot of the systematic disadvantage that you would otherwise. I think about that a lot with regard to financial privilege, the fact Mm -hmm. that I was brought up in a middle class family and always had access to everything that I've needed and I have wealth accumulation from family on stolen land where first nations people don't have access to the same kind of wealth accumulation because it's stolen and i think about how much that helps me avoid certain kinds of transphobia like i don't have to take public transport all the time i can get in an uber or i can drive my car or i can stay home i can work from home like i have so much more mobility because of the privileges that i've been afforded and so i think really spending a lot of time to reflect on that and to sit in that I guess subverts a dynamic of feeling like there is a binary of privileged and oppressed because it isn't a binary in the same way that there aren't men and women. There are so many mosaics and combinations of privilege and oppression. And I think they also disproportionately affect people depending on who they are and how they process that information and what kind of trauma they bring to the table as well. So, you know, I think if we're talking very simplistically about feeling resentment towards Men in general, I think it's really important to surround yourself with people who understand that experience and who can support you through that. And I definitely think going to therapy is a really helpful thing. I mean, I've been in therapy most of my life and... I would die for my psychologist. She is the best. (laughs) I think that those are really important things. But, yeah, I think spending time reflecting on our own privileges and how we have been advantaged is really important. And not as a way of, like, saying that you haven't suffered or that you don't experience those kinds of oppressions, but just understanding that the world is a really complicated place Mm -hmm. and men are not just inherently privileged. Like, they are on the axis of gender, but there may be lots of other factors that mean that they're not experiencing privilege and I think that that's important to consider as well.
0: I think that those are all incredibly wise words for us to learn from and you've articulated them so beautifully. I think that we need to also add something in there about people who are unwilling to have those conversations with themselves. What do you do with that? You know, so she's asking, how do you not resent people who are a byproduct of their environment? Mm and yet seem to refuse to acknowledge Mm. their role in that, Mm. which is we should all be taking the approach that you've just outlined so well there. But you do end up feeling frustrated and a little bit gaslit by people Mm. who are like, well, I don't have any fucking privilege.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think it's quite complicated because it's very circumstantial. I can't say just like don't surround yourself with those kinds of people because obviously- Sometimes they're your family. Sometimes they're your family. Often they're your family. For me, like I have that experience in my family sometimes and I've just put certain self-care tactics in place like time limits on how much time I will spend or Mm -hmm. not engaging in those sorts of provocative conversations because I don't think that I'm going to make significant change through those conversations in my family. I think also something I'm really trying to cultivate with different family members is curiosity about Mm. them and where they're coming at things in the world. I wouldn't extend that same curiosity to strangers on the internet or to dudes I meet on the street. But when it comes to my family, like understanding the baggage that they're carrying and trying to meet them in some spot of empathy, because I think that when we are just really resentful and we're really angry at someone, especially in our family, it's a little bit like drinking poison and expecting them to die. Mm. It's like it disadvantages us. Holding on to that resentment is actually a form of self-deprecation. So an act of self-love is sometimes trying to be curious and trying to meet them where they're at. And if you don't want to, you know, that's also fair. Like there are other ways around it.
0: I recently got to the stage with my dad, actually, who I have a Exactly, one of those complicated relationships with in that he's my dad and I love him and he's been a good dad in most ways, Mm. but he has progressively become more and more like it's beyond even saying problematic. Mm. You know, his political views are polar opposites to mine and it's been a huge source of distress and a huge source of conflict between us. And once upon a time in my younger years, when I had It's not just the energy for the fight because we all need the energy for the fight. But when I was certain that I could change his views or I had more enthusiasm for the kind of the headbutting nature of it, I wouldn't have just let things slide. And then, of course, I would always be framed as the person that had ruined the family lunch. And, you know, it's always... Oh,
1: haven't we all been the person that's ruined family lunch?
0: (laughs) Always flipped back on you. Whereas now, and look, I'm not saying that this is the best thing to do. Mm. I'm sure that some people would have legitimate critique of this, but we all have to make the choices that we make within our own families. I've just decided I just don't want to have those conversations with mm. him. And weirdly, now he's the one who tries to kind of like goad me or agitate me. Yeah,
1: I have the same thing with my brother. He mm. does the same and he asks provocative questions. And I've just said to him, if you want to have me in, my, in your life... You need to stop doing this. I just want to hang out with the kids and I want to drink a beer and I don't want to talk about these things. And, yeah, in some ways that's like bad allyship and not having those conversations, but it's also self-protective and it's also boundaries.
0: It's reserving your energy as well so that you can take that energy and apply it places where you may be able to make change.
1: Yeah, and often family members aren't going to hear you as some sort of authority on an issue. I mean, my...
0: Dad doesn't see me as a 39-year-old woman with... Two books. I mean, he, he's very supportive yeah. of those things. But he, as we all see our family members as rooted in some some point in time, mm. I don't see my sister as being a 43-year-old woman. I see her as being my 16-year-old older sister. Exactly. And
1: there's sometimes no way to push through that. I mean, my empathetic approach is like a really great one, but it's not every circumstance. I say that as someone who has disowned my father. You know, Mm. there's no more empathy left in me for him. So, like, I've got nothing to do with him. And I think making those decisions about when you're going to engage in those conversations, who is worth the fight and who isn't, is really important and really important boundaries to establish, again, probably with a therapist.
0: In regards to the parental approval part of the question, how do you have enough gusto to just fuck the system while constantly seeking that all-encompassing parental approval? I feel like that's a process that maybe you have clearly gone through that I think I've gone through where you can't divorce yourself entirely from the desire to have parents you have previously had a relationship with and have love for, however complicated it may be, to want their approval. Mm a lot of trauma is built in people because they never felt like they had that or they didn't have the encouragement that they wanted and needed from their parents, which is why we need to be so soft and kind to the children in our lives. But at some point you also do need to kind of make that decision for yourself where you say, well, is this person ever going to give me what I want?
1: Mm.
0: Probably not. Will I continue to be hurt by wanting that? Probably yes. So at some point I have to just decide that that approval has to come from me.
1: Mm.
0: I can't keep looking to other people to give it to me. I need to approve of my own actions and I need to approve of the positive – Place that those actions are coming from.
1: Yeah. And if I need that from other people, then I need to surround myself with people who can give that to me. Mm. Like, and I think that for me, as part of my non monogamous practice, like that's actually been really valuable in my relationship with my family is when I don't get the things from my mom that I kind of want or need, I go to my friends and I know that they can give that. And that means that I get to meet my mom more empathetically where she's at and appreciate Mm. her for who she is because she's never going to offer me emotional support in the same way. But goddamn, she will cook so much food for me if I am depressed. And that is radical trans care and that keeps me alive. I want to eat your mum's cooking, by the way. (laughs) It's very good. (laughs) But, you know, with regard to my dad, like that was never going to happen. And so I knew that and I think there's a lot of healing that can be done when you recognise that that approval may never come in the form that you want. Mm. And also in other ways, I think by being the the black sheep who ruins family dinners, (laughs) it's a long game. You know, Mm. with my mum, I've seen slow but consistent and quite amazing change and I think that that's taught me a lot as someone who was raised in social media of of instant gratification that that's not what activism looks like that activism is a life cycle of many generations and as you continue to chisel away you do see change and I'm noticing the ways that she's now you know boycotting the Melbourne races when she Mm. used to go Every single year, how mm. she will do acknowledgements of country if ever she's giving a speech, which is not something she used to do, how she'll donate money to First Nations organizations, which was nothing she was aware mm. of before, you know, and and she even said to me recently, I've learned so much from you. And it's taken many years for her to say that and not just argue. Mm. <laughs> and she still does. But it's that progress, that is what I'm looking for. You know, I don't need the instant gratification of someone who has changed overnight as much as that would be great. It probably wouldn't be authentic. And so, yeah, sometimes it is a real slow chisel and if they're worth it and you love them because you probably do, then just hang in there and have as much support around you to continue to do that work.
0: This is also why it's so important that we take care of each other because that slow drip nature of the work is exhausting in itself.
1: Yeah, that's how I felt a lot in lockdown. I think at the beginning of lockdown especially, I I feel like I do quite a lot of community support for a lot of people in my spheres and I give whatever I can to people and offer, you know, whatever I have. But lockdown happened and I just felt like I needed to just look after myself and go into myself and not check in with anyone and not ask them how they were and just isolate for a little while and I said to my friend I feel terrible like this is the time where people need so much help and I need to support people and I just can't and she was like and it's also the time that other people are the most mobilized so take a break Mm. you know for the people who are consistently and always doing this work when days pop up like Trans Day of Remembrance or you know um, Ida Hobbit or that's when people are suddenly mobilized and they're doing things and they're centering trans people and those are the days that I want to take off. (laughs) Those are the days that I want to have breaks because my life isn't a day, you know, and activism isn't a day and it's not survival day, which is the day that I engage with First Nations Justice. It's every day that I am challenging myself to be involved in those conversations and to be consistently engaged. So it's really helpful sometimes to have those moments to be like, other people are mobilised, I'm going to take a seat.
0: Mm. So just to summarise for this little sister, it's really important to have empathy and compassion and kindness for the people around you, particularly those people who you love, which is not the same as enforcing or reinforcing their views or ignoring their views. But as you said, Navo, understand your own privilege as well and be willing to explore that privilege. And if, if the people around you are not willing to do that work, then you can find other people to get that approval from and other people to bolster you in that role and in that desire. Let us know how it goes. Okay, this is a little bit of a prickly one. Friendship Woes writes, I turned 21 this year and I realized I didn't really have any close girlfriends. I joined a friendship group on Facebook and put a post looking for some close genuine friendships. Long story short, I ended up forming a small group of four friends, including me. I'm going to talk about one of these girls. Let's call her Jan. Now, this little sister goes on to say that Jan, from their first meeting, shared a lot of stories about her life that seemed deeply rooted in trauma, but also that Friendship Woes found herself feeling a little nervous about some of these stories because that some of them made her worry that she might have a vengeful nature and some of them involved violence. She writes, she became very close to me on her behalf and was messaging me every day and would get upset if I didn't message back fast enough or if I didn't use emojis in my messages, she would accuse me of hating her or say that I was angry with her. This wasn't the case at all. We would catch up at least once a week and I was really trying to find the spark in a friendship with her. She would say odd things like, I'll be your surrogate mother, etc. Or she would tell me things from her past that didn't come across as normal, She wouldn't like it if I met up with other girls on my own, and it came across as possessive to me. She only knew me for eight weeks and was telling my sister how she was my best friend. I don't see her as my best friend. I'm struggling to see her as my friend at this point. A few weeks ago, we caught up again, and two new girls joined in for our dinner date. Jan was very unhappy that they were joining us, and she even told one of them that she didn't want her coming because she felt like she was being replaced. This poor girl must have felt so shocked to hear that from someone she had just met. Jan then said she realised that they were nice girls so she was going to quote-unquote allow them to be in our group. She's in her final trimester of her pregnancy currently and I'm wondering as to whether I waited out until she's had the baby and then let the friendship drift on its own. I'm scared to end the friendship as I'm worried as to what she will do and I'm also worried that I will lose the other girls who I've bonded with and found a true friendship with. I am someone who sucks with confronting people but I genuinely do not feel she's a good person to be around and I'm worried that I could end up friendless. I feel drained around her and I just feel as though I'm not being myself and as though I'm talking to a stranger when I'm with her. I don't have a big sister to ask for advice from and I really, really need your
1: help. What would you do? Oh, my goodness. Quickly, right? It's a hard one. So many red flags. It sounds like a lot of, like, toxic monogamy sort of Mm. permission-based frameworks of, like, having to ask a partner if you can go out with friends or if you can do this rather than trusting in the autonomy of the other person, which is very red flag in a relationship and especially red flaggy to me in a a friendship dynamic. It seems like this person is already very aware of that and so they don't need me to say like, oh, it doesn't sound good. Oh, God, I don't know when you would tell someone. I'm quite good at confrontation. I do it a lot. I ask people out a lot. I practice doing that a lot and I... You know, I'm getting better at at ending things with people as well. (laughs) I wonder if the others in the friendship group are also kind of feeling that way and are aware of that and if there would be a way to communicate with someone else and see if there would be some support in that. But at the same time, I'm also worried how this person might react if they lose their entire friendship group. Mm. I don't know. What do you think?
0: It's a really tricky one because there are, as you said, so many red flags and yet there's also the context that fake name Jan is clearly coming from a place of trauma.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, having said that, trauma doesn't excuse abusive behaviour and to me this is textbook abuse. Mm. If she was saying I started seeing a new person and this is how they're behaving, we'd be like, well, that person is an abuser and you Mm. need to safely in the best way that you can extricate yourself from the situation. I know from her letter that one of the things she is concerned about is some kind of retaliation, which I think is not an unreasonable thing to worry about if a lot of those red flags have come up. I think we don't talk enough about how friendships can be, I mean, obviously we we have a framework to talk about toxic friendships, Mm. but we don't talk enough about the early signs of toxicity in a friendship in the same way that we might say in a relationship or in a burgeoning relationship these are some of the red flags to look out for. Those same things exist in friendships and the insistence that you spend all of your time with this one person, that if you're spending time with other friends, that you're somehow letting them down or that you're going to abandon them. I mean, she sounds like she's got major abandonment issues. Mm,
1: And especially if that friendship dynamic isn't even there in the first place. Like it's quite new and it seems like the person isn't actually allowing it to organically develop but is pushing it into a sort of box immediately.
0: There's also the fact that she's pregnant and it may be that her behaviour is, I'm not excusing it, but it may be that her behaviour is being exacerbated by her pregnancy. I know I had horrific prenatal anxiety Mm. and I'm sure I was probably quite fraught to be around sometimes, not in the same ways, obviously, obviously. Um, Yeah, I look, I think that she's very young as well, this little sister, she's 21. Mm -hmm. The other thing I wanted to say was congratulations and good on you for putting yourself out there and saying I would really like to find a group of friends.
1: Yeah, and very self-reflective as well about the red flags. Like I think that even being able to identify those things is an important skill that not everyone or that a lot of people don't have Mm. Um,
0: Have you ever had a friendship because when I was reading this as well a lot of it kind of reminded me of some of the dynamics I've had with people where you sort of get a sense early on there is an imbalance of power mm. in this relationship and sometimes they have more power and sometimes you have more power and one of the things that you do have power over is the fact that you don't really want to be there as much as they do And it is really uncomfortable to think about how do I extricate myself from this situation where you've built up an intimacy early on maybe that you didn't really ask for
1: Mm.
0: and you do worry if I don't tread carefully with this, it's going to come back to hurt me in some way. Yeah. Which is particularly I'd be curious to know if you've had this experience since you've become more of a public figure,
1: Mm -hmm. if you
0: feel like you can't there are certain friendships that you feel like maybe you can't really trust the stability of them because you don't know how genuine they are.
1: Yeah, I don't know if I've had it heaps in friendships. Maybe I have. I think what has contributed to it a lot is that I have a really strong friendship group of girls that I've been friends with since grade four. So we've been friends for 16 years. Mm -hmm. And that has acted as a threat sometimes for new friendships because I think as far as I'm concerned, it's like, I've got my soulmates, we're set, everyone else is bonus and amazing. And I mean, I feel differently now in my adult life. That's how I felt as a child. Now in my adult life, I'm like, I need lots of people. But I've always had really close networks and lots of support around me, which is absolutely a privilege and something I'm very grateful for. But I think it means that my reliance on new friends is very different than maybe theirs might be if they don't have the same amount of support around them or if they're just not social in the same ways. And so it has come up a few times where there's been imbalances of needs and desires within friendships, within romantic relationships. Um, That's something I've dealt with quite a lot. And I guess something I've been working through with my psychologist is that she was explaining to me that having those imbalances is not inherently problematic, that, you know, there are lots of relationships where things aren't entirely reciprocal, where there is a different balance of desire or needs or frequency and wanting to see each other. And if you can communicate about that and meet in the middle, then it's totally fine and doesn't have to become a power dynamic. But I'm still not sure exactly how to navigate that because it does still feel like one. If you feel like you don't need to spend as much time with someone, that inherently feels like you're in a position of power. So I guess it's really hard because something I'm also trying to navigate is what is the difference between open and clear communication and responsible communication Mm. because I used to just be very much an open communicator and just say everything that was on my mind and everything I was thinking. Which is not always kind. Which is not always kind and not always responsible. Mm. Sometimes it's actually my shit that I need to work through with a therapist or with (laughs) other people and not for the person to receive because I was just projecting it and then they were holding it and I didn't have to work on it anymore. So I think it's really hard questions. I think it also means that these lessons are really helpful and maybe really helpful for this little sister as well to know what she is looking for in friends from here on out um, because I now know those signs pretty early on and can sort of be like, I don't think I felt a spark or I don't know mm. if we're on the same page or when looking for the same things. And that's applicable as well to friendships and getting out earlier makes this easier. Um,
0: It's not necessarily true that there's a huge age gap between them because, you know, this other person could be a 21-year-old having a baby. They could Mm. be the same age. But I'm getting the impression that maybe there is an age gap, you know, comments like I could be your surrogate mother, which adds another layer of – I mean, that friendships with older people can be wonderfully enriching, but with that power dynamic already in play, I can appreciate thinking, well, this is – bordering into weird sort of toxic maternal territory here. I wouldn't suggest abandoning her when the baby is born. I mean, that's such an intense time and there are kinder, as you said, more responsible ways to communicate that. But, you know, it's a tricky time because she's in her last trimester. She will be incredibly absorbed with the child when it arrives and you're also 21. Mm. You know, there are things that surely you'll be distracted by. You know, you want to go out and party and probably, maybe, Um I don't know, I really feel for you because you're in a situation that has no easy answers.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think generally what I would do is have a conversation. I don't know what that would look like with this person, but I think a way that you can have a conversation around this stuff is saying like, hey, it feels to me like maybe our expectations around this friendship are a little bit different. I'd love to know Mm -hmm. what your ideal situation is for this, and then I'd love to tell you my ideal situation, and if they're incompatible, maybe we can meet somewhere in the middle. I think what's also really important in this conversation, and all conversations is ensuring that you are validating their truth and also your truth so by saying like And that is a reasonable expectation for where you're at and what you need and my expectations are also reasonable for where I'm at and what I need. There is no objective truth that exists in those spaces and when you try to paint your own perspective as objective, it can be quite manipulative. Mm. So I think validating that in someone and saying like, you want someone who can be present with you all the time, you want a friend who is like always there and that is so fair and I just don't think I can offer that to you. I want to be a good friend to you but it seems like we might be on different pages... I wonder if we can meet in the middle. And if not, maybe there are people I can introduce you to. Um, Maybe our other friends would want to, you know, live up to that role in a different way. And maybe those are ways that you can have that conversation, but I don't know how this person would respond Mm. to that. That's how I would approach it if I felt confident that they could engage.
0: I think that that's really good advice regardless of how this person will respond because it is the most honest and most responsible and it is a very mature and kind way to approach things. It's a good reminder that you can't be responsible for how someone responds to you, particularly not if you've gone into that dialogue with pure intentions and with respect and with truthfulness on your side and, as you said, with kindness and responsibility. How they choose to respond to that is on them. Mm. And if you at any point feel unsafe, then I would suggest seeking broader help. Mm. Beyond that, I think that you're in a position where you can, as Nouveau said, you can outline what it is that you think that they are looking for in a friendship and validate that to them and say, I really hope that you find that. And I really hope that you find that with people who are are at the same stage of life as Mm. you. I mean, a reminder that she will be put into a mother's group when she gives birth. Mm. That's true. She'll be able to find women who are going through the same experiences as, as she is and then validate your own desires as well, as you said. You know, this is what I'm looking for. This is the stage of life that I'm at. And I've said this before on the show. It's advice that my mother gave to my brother when he was breaking up with his first girlfriend. And it was offered in in the context of ending romantic relationships. But I think it's actually really applicable when you're ending friendships as well, which is another thing that we don't really talk about, Mm. how to end friendships, how to break up with people respectfully and kindly when you're just friends. But she said make sure that when you break up with people you do it in a way that you could look at them on the street one day and you could both smile at each other and understand that was a parting well made.
1: Mm.
0: And I think that in in this situation she may not feel that same way, this Jan. She may not ever feel like it was fair that you ended the friendship Mm. but at least you will go forward knowing I did this with respect for her and with respect for myself and I didn't do it duplicitously. I didn't Mm. run away and hide. I confronted it head on. I laid out what I wanted and what I needed and that's the best that I can do.
1: Yeah, and sometimes in a bid to protect someone's feelings, we end up hurting them more, you know, like by actually just being honest and considerate and, yeah, respecting both ourselves and the other person, it's better to sometimes gently rip that Band-Aid off earlier.
0: Mm. Good luck, little sister. Okay, last question. Privacy Concerns asks, I am an artist and I'm heading in a new direction with my work, incorporating my feminist beliefs into it and calling on other women I know to share their experiences with me so I can work these into my art. But I have concerns about potential impacts on my husband and teenage children as they don't necessarily agree with my beliefs and I may be opening them up to negative public feedback that they haven't asked for based on the experiences I see someone such as yourself, she's talking about me, going through. My question to you is what steps would you recommend I take to distance my family from the public and maintain as much basic privacy as possible to help minimise possible future impacts? And Ivo, I I thought this would be a really good one to ask you because obviously you're in a similar position where the work that you do is very vulnerable and it invites people into your life and does by necessity talk about your family sometimes. Mm -hmm. How do you maintain that balance between privacy and
1: being true to your art? I don't know that I do. (laughs) I'm a very public person and I guess I'm lucky that none of my family are incredibly private, Mm. that they've been pretty open. Or they've not heard all of the, the podcasts and things where I've spoken <laughs> about them. Yeah, I mean, it did come up recently because I got quite a lot of hate on my Instagram overnight one day and some really disgusting comments, really anti-Semitic, transphobic and a lot of threats of violence in really graphic terms. And one of those comments was on a photo of me with my niblings, which is the gender neutral term for nieces or nephews, and that really hit me. Mm. I didn't care so much about the photos of me or the photos of me, you know, in bikinis or whatever that I expect to receive hate on as a trans person. But when the kids were involved, it made me sort of reflect and think maybe I shouldn't post these children on my Instagram and what does that mean? And if this starts to happen more often, what does that mean? I started thinking about how much information about me is on the internet, whether people could find where I live, all of those sorts of questions. And I guess I resolved that I would probably come and speak to you about (laughs) your advice on that if I did get to that position because I imagine you've got a lot of protocols in place for those things.
0: It's interesting because I live so much of my life very publicly but I think that I've maintained... Really good boundaries over how much of my life I share that involves other people. So people would know very little about my sister even though we're incredibly close. And obviously I don't share my son's name, I don't share photos of him in public, or if I do, if he is in a photo, his face will always be covered. And I appreciate exactly what you're saying about the comments on photographs of your nibblings being the ones that sting the most, because I always feel like I can take anything that anyone throws at me, but the moment that they incorporate my son into it, I would murder them. Mm. And when I was with his dad, I stopped really, really early on in our relationship, I stopped posting photographs of him on my Instagram because I was like, he didn't choose Mm. this, you know. He may have loved me but he didn't choose everything that went along with that publicly because so much of my life is public. It's really important for me as well that I have aspects of it, the things that I love the most are kept private, not just to protect people but also to protect a part of myself so that I don't, I feel like I'm a very accessible person in lots of ways, but I don't want to be 100% accessible to everyone. Mm. I don't want to live a life that is fully online where people know every single thing about mm. me. In fact, I find it quite disconcerting when really famous people or influencers or whatever with like hundreds of thousands of followers post photographs of their kids mm. or incorporate them in some way. Look, everyone has to choose their own path for them. But I think that when it comes to children, they don't have the ability to consent to that. I think Mm. it's weird that strangers would want to kind of follow your children's journeys. I just personally don't like it. What's standing out to me in this question, though, is that I I think that she's really correct to think about protecting her teenage kids Mm. and how does she go about doing that. What I find a little bit weird is the husband factor, that he doesn't necessarily agree with all my views. Now, you're not always going to agree with the things that your partner believes in, but feminist views are pretty central. They're Mm. pretty core to who you are as a person. It would be like you saying, well, I want to figure out how to protect my partner's privacy because they don't necessarily really agree with all my views on trans activism. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. How? There are a lot of women in relationships with men who say, well, he doesn't really approve of or he doesn't really get my Mm -hmm. feminist views, which always strikes me as bizarre. You can have there's wiggle room on understanding and, you know, not everyone has to agree on every single thing. But it seems to me to be like a pretty big disconnect to say, well, they don't really agree with like my core political values.
1: Yeah, there's also a really big difference between, yeah, not agreeing with core political values and then maybe not agreeing with the method of going about them. Mm. I think that that's a really different thing. It's like you can both agree that housing should be public and should be accessible to people and then have very different ideas of how that would be implemented. Mm. I think that's fine. Those are the kind of political differences that I can have with my partners, with my family, with my close friends. It's like we already agree about trans activism, but how we go about that or or what kinds of activism sings true for us is like, that's fine. But yeah, those core belief disagreements, that's a deal breaker for me.
0: I think that a good step would be for this little sister to sit down with her family and say, obviously, I'm looking to expand my art practice. This is what I want to do. I I'm also cognizant of the fact that you may want to have your privacy protected. Let's talk about Mm. our boundaries. Let's talk about what you definitely will not accept as an intrusion on your life and let's talk about some other things that maybe we can negotiate on. Would you like me to never talk about my family? Would you like me Mm. to only use my first name? Let's have a conversation about that. And I think that that invites people to express in private and express around like a neutral area, these are my concerns. Mm. Maybe your kids might say, well, I'm really worried about going to school and being teased about whatever it is that you've done. And maybe no one at school will know about it. Maybe it won't be a hot topic of conversation, but inviting them into the conversation from the outset gives them a sense of agency and control over their situation and control over their environment, which they may otherwise not get if you just decide to do it, and which actually a lot of kids in particular don't get anyway from their parents and their parents' actions.
1: Yeah, and it probably has to be an ongoing consensual conversation, right, because the parameters of those things will change. I mean, I think Mm. maybe you and I both would never have expected that some of our work would have gone to some of the places that it has, and would I have posted certain things if I would have known that? Maybe Mm. not. Even now, I feel like I could be sitting on the precipice of, like, receiving that hatred was a bit of a wake up call and I was like, Well right now I've got what, five thousand followers on Instagram, it feels pretty low stakes but I don't know that in the future I won't have many more. I won't have a lot of people delving Thank you. Uh, I won't have a lot of people delving into the history of things I've posted when my Instagram was for my friends. Mm. And that's something that freaks me out a little bit is that I don't know the parameters of those things right now. And so that's why I think having an ongoing check-in about those things with others and also with yourself is probably Mm. important. And I'm hearing it and thinking I need to do that. (laughs)
0: Mm. I hear what you're saying too. I mean, also for me, for this little sister, for me going forward, it's not one of those things where you – Like you just do it and it's done. You know, the conversations about privacy, particularly as my son gets older, will be ongoing and will be ever-changing. What he feels conscious of now is non-existent, basically, in terms of my job, but that will obviously change the older he gets, and we're going to have to keep revisiting that conversation. So this is the only advice I think that we can really offer you, Mm. is to open up the lines of communication. Say to them, these lines of communication will stay open. You can come to me at any point and say, actually, I'm really uncomfortable with this mum or my darling, whatever it may be, and be willing to listen to what they're saying. You may not necessarily agree with it, but you are at least making it clear that you're open for negotiation. Yeah. And that's the best that you can do. You've been listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly advice podcast that delivers no-nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back, your big sisters. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you look for great content. And you can also listen to all the back episodes. If you do enjoy it, please consider rating and reviewing it. And if you enjoy the Hotline, you can support the ongoing making of it at my Patreon, which is www.patreon.com forward slash Clementine Ford, where pledges of more than $10 per month receive access to a bonus monthly episode of the Hotline or, as I'm about to do, a whole lot of little bonus episodes only available for download to subscribers. You can send your questions to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com and don't worry, all submissions are treated as totally anonymous. We're big sisters and we've got your back. My guest this week has been Navo a Jewish queer non-binary writer, performer, activist and public speaker based in Nam biruranga Melbourne. They have a new book coming out called The Pronoun Lowdown. It will be out in March next year and uh, you can pre-order it, is that correct, mm-hmm. You can pre order it now. You can also follow them on Instagram. What's your
1: handle? Uh, Just Nivozisin, N E V O Z I S I N. And uh, book me for workshops in your workplaces.
0: Yeah. And I will uh, link all of that in the liner notes as well of the podcast. Nivo, it is always such a pleasure to speak to you. I feel like I go away with my brain and mind completely expanded. I envy how articulate you are with your thoughts that you never seem to um and ah. (laughs) are. And you say, (laughs) you share such pearls of wisdom. I was really, I've had numerous conversations with you and I learned so much today and I felt completely enriched by our conversation. And I know that everyone listening to this will have felt the same way. So thank you so much.
1: No, thank you so much. I appreciate that a lot.
0: I love you. And I'm so glad that you're in the world.
1: I love you right back.
0: Remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now that it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead, the Big Sister Hotline. The phone lines are open.